Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray that you would be our teacher now as we take on a challenging uh, topic as a community. Help us to um, understand the way you deal with your world, with us, and lead us to the secure grace and steadfast love of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a question that I've been uh, frequently asked over the years, both as a Christian and as a pastor, I'm surprised how many times I've been asked this, is what do you think about aliens? You know, if it turns out there's intelligent life on other planets, what would that do to your faith? And maybe you've been asked that question. And that question is what my dad would have called a big what if question. What if there are aliens? And uh, there's, as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no evidence of intelligent life anywhere else in the universe. So I don't really bother myself with that question. But it is related to another question that I think is interesting. That you look out on the vast universe around us. I looked it up that uh, the, the current number of the size of the universe is 200 billion trillion stars. Billion trillion, 200 billion trillion stars. And, uh, and, th- and that just in one galaxy, like the, the Milky Way, there are t- two trillion galaxies, by the way, there is 100 billion planets just in our galaxy. And you say, there's 100 billion planets just in our galaxy. How could there be that many planets and, and then think that there's just one little Earth is the special place that's the only place that has life and intelligence on it? How could that be? Well, the answer is the principle of election. It's how God works. Of all those vast stars and planets, it pleased God that he would choose one to be special to him. And on that one planet, it turns out that there's, you know, the estimates are that there's 8 million species of, uh, you know, species on planet Earth. And of all, all the 8 million species, there's only one that he chose that would be made after his image. And of all the nations of that one species, there was only one nation that God chose to be his special people, his special possession, the Israelites. And of the 12 tribes of the Israelites, there was only one tribe that he chose to be given the kingship. That was the tribe of Judah. And all the centuries of, of, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of people from the tribe of Judah over the centuries, there was only one that was God's chosen one, who was Jesus. The story of the world is the story of God's sovereign election. And there's something so romantic, I think, about election. You know, you think of, you know, when a man falls in love and gets married, there's billions of women in the world, and he chooses one to say, I forsake them all for you. You are my chosen. You're the one that I'm devoted to. You're the one that I love. And that's what God is like. And by the way, it's important to understand that, you know, why did God choose that one man, Jesus? Well, it's for the sake of his people, Israel. And why did he choose the people of Israel? Well, they were supposed to be a light to all the nations. It was for the sake of all the nations. And why did God choose humanity? Well, it says to have dominion and to rule over the earth and to bring God's loving rule to the whole creation. And actually, the book of Romans says that the whole universe is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. So in some way, through God's work through humanity, there's freedom that will be brought to the whole creation. I mean, it's an incredible vision. And this is one of the great unifying principles of the story of the Bible. And today, we have a key passage in that story when David is chosen by God to replace Saul as the king of Israel. It's it's a story of election. 
And in this passage, uh, we learn really three key themes about the doctrine of election, the, the doctrine of election in the Bible. And this is what the three th themes are. Is that first, election shows God's supreme sovereignty. Second, election turns the world upside down. And third, election is only in Jesus. Three key points. That election shows God's supreme sovereignty. Election turns the world upside down. And third, election is only in Jesus. And I'll tell you, election is an important uh, part of the th our theology here at at Christ Church, we're a Presbyterian Reformed church. This is a doctrine that's dear to us, so I'm, I'm excited that we get to study it together this morning. So, three points on election from 1 Samuel 16. The first is this, that election shows God's supreme sovereignty. Election shows God's supreme sovereignty. And in this passage, you know, Samuel is deeply discouraged by the fact that Saul, who was the first king of Israel, has now been rejected by the Lord. And so this chapter begins in verse 1. You see what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send to you uh, Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now there is a very clear sense from this verse who is in control of the story that is playing out in 1 Samuel. The Lord says, why are you grieved? I'm the one who rejected Saul, and I'm the one who's going to choose the king. And the story of Israel is not ultimately about what Samuel the prophet does. It's not about what Saul the king does. It's about what God is doing. God is the main character in the Bible. You know, when you read through the Bible, who is the main character? You think, oh, there's Abraham, and there's Moses, and there's all these important characters. No. The main one who is acting, you know, the protagonist is the Lord, who's the creator, he's the judge, he's the savior, he's the protector. And there's always a sense of God's initiative that is leading everything. You know, when the world was started, why was the world started? We wouldn't have thought of a world like this. It was God's initiative. He said, I'm going to make a world. And then you think of Abraham, where the people of Israel came from. Abraham was off worshiping idols in Mesopotamia, it says. He wasn't even thinking about the Lord. And the Lord says, I have a plan for you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. It was the Lord's initiative. Or when Jesus, God became a human in Jesus. We would not have thought of that. That wasn't our idea. That wasn't our initiative. It was God's initiative to come to us. Election shows God's supreme sovereignty, his initiative over everything that happens in his creation. And the reason this doctrine is so dear to us here at this church is because one of you know, our first core value as a church is that we believe in grace. And uh, we, we believe that we're saved by God, not by our own wisdom or our good works or our devotion to God. We are saved by grace. It's not our doing, it's his doing. And when you really work out the implications of grace and you say, well, if it was God who came down to save me and I'm not working my way up to God, then did I choose God or did God choose me? If grace is really true, it can't be that we chose God. It can't be that we were on a spiritual journey and, and we found the divine one. It's that he went on a mission to come find us. And when you ask people who become Christians, tell me the story of how that happened. It's always that way. You know, I mean, if they grew up in the church, they, were, they didn't choose that. God just planted them in the church and they grew up here in the gospel. Or if you become a Christian as an adult and they say, you know, the Lord just put 
people in my life who started talking to me about God, or they'd say, you know, for so long I'd heard things and, and they meant nothing to me. And then all of a sudden it felt like my eyes were opened. And all of a sudden new things were important to me that were never important to me. It was like God had just changed my heart or like taken the, you know, the veil off of my eyes and all of a sudden I could see things. This is the story of sovereign grace, God's sovereign grace who saves people. And so first, election in God's supreme sovereignty over his creation is essential if we are going to be a community of grace. We have to believe in that, okay? But I'll tell you, there's another thing that happens when you believe that that we're chosen not because of anything in us, but only because of God's incredible grace, it should lead us to a profound humility. You say, how, how could I look down on anyone? How could I ever discount anyone as being too far off from God? It's impossible. There's nothing in me. It's not like I was wise or smart that brought me to the Lord. It was the Lord who came and rescued me. If he could rescue me, he could rescue anyone. And so I think that leads to a second thing that we learn about election in this passage, So first, election shows us God's supreme sovereignty. Second, election turns the world upside down. Election turns the world upside down. And what I mean by that is election is the way that God humbles the proud. So those who put themselves high up, he brings them low. And raises up the lowly. Election turns the world upside down by humbling the proud and raising up the lowly. And you see actually both those things happening in this passage. So first, election humbles the proud. And, uh, and so this passage begins by the Lord telling Samuel, get a horn of oil and I'll show you who I want you to make the new king. And, but this makes Samuel nervous. You see what it says there in verse 2? And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now what's happening here is that basically Samuel is, is a prophet and he is the kingmaker in Israel. He's the one who makes people kings. He made Saul king. He anointed king, you know, Saul uh, as king. And then in the last chapter, Samuel told Saul, he says, the Lord is ripping the kingdom out of your hand and he's going to give the kingdom to someone else. And so you picture, you know, Saul, what, how's Saul going to think about that? He knows I'm losing the kingdom. And so in his pride, he's going to say, I'm not going to let this kingdom get ripped out of my hand. And so he's like, I'm going to keep an eye on Samuel and where he's going and who he's fallen after. He's going to go try to find a new king. And so the Lord has a plan that he will not be undermined by the pride of humans. And so you see in the second part of verse 2, it says, And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And so Samuel, he's a prophet. He's also a priest. So he's a priest. So he does the sacrifices. And so they have this plan of like, how am I going to avoid Saul? I'm going I'm to tell him I go need to do a sacrifice in Bethlehem where Jesse is. This is David's, David's father. And so he kind of passes, sneaks past Saul's watchful eye and in the process anoints a new king. And this story right here is the beginning of the humbling of Saul. Saul, who was the proud king, is being brought low. It is our pride that says, um, I am in control of my own life. I can set my own goals. I can achieve my own dreams, and I can keep anyone from hurting me. And that desire for control, you know, it's especially true for us as Americans. As Americans, you know, we put so much weight on our individual choices, 
our individual uh, desires. We live in a very individualist society. And we believe that we can create our own lives. Like we're our own gods that you can do whatever you set your mind to and you can create, create your, all your dreams. And so the thought that you can't choose to have a relationship with God, that he has to choose you on his terms, in his way, is there to humble our pride. Election is there to humble our pride. And for those of us who particularly love control in our lives, we will find again and again a frustratingly immovable force who is actually running this world and it's not us. And we find that that frustration is because this isn't our world, this is God's world. And he will resist the proud at every turn. And until we know that, life in this world will be both frustrating and humbling. So first, election turns the world upside down by humbling the proud. But second, election also raises the lowly. Turns the world upside down by raising the lowly. And I love how this story goes, that even though Samuel, he's a great prophet, and he you know, he's meets Jesse's family, and uh, he can't even really guess who it is the Lord is going to choose to be the king. You see, he comes... Uh, to uh, Jesse's family comes to him in verse six and it says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he sees the oldest brother who's strapping, he's tall, he's big. He's like, wow, hey, impressive. This must be the one the Lord is choosing. Uh, wrong. The Lord chooses in ways very differently than we do. He doesn't love the things that humans love. And you see that great line in verse 7 where it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the Lord goes through seven sons of Jesse, and you see that the emphasis is on the Lord's choosing again and again. Look, this is the language of election, the end of verse 8. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. End of verse 9. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. The end of verse 10. The Lord has not chosen these. So which one will the Lord choose? Well, it turns out that the Lord always has a preference for weakness and for the lowly. That's who he chooses. And you see there in verse 11 where it says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And actually the word there, youngest, is, is literally the smallest. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 9, when Saul became king, he was the tallest of everyone. And everyone's like, wow, the big tall king. And he's the one who was proud and disobedient to the Lord. And so here the Lord said this is the, the, uh, the king that I'm choosing is the one who is weak. Throughout the Bible, this is what the Lord does. He chooses the weak. He raises up the lowly. And I can't tell you how often this is the case. This is how God works. You know, I was thinking about this recently. I was talking to uh, uh, someone who's like a missionary who is doing fundraising. And I've heard this story over and over again when missionaries are, are fundraising and they, they have their donor list and they have someone who's very wealthy and they say, oh, I'm going to go talk to this person and I bet they're going to become, a, they got a lot of money and they're going to be a big donor for me. And almost inevitably they go and it's like, yeah, it didn't work out. They didn't have anything. And then there's some person that they hadn't even thought much about who just comes and says, you know, the Lord's put it on my heart 
and we've been thinking of who to give to, and we want to, and, and this person that they weren't even thinking of, maybe with modest means, comes and becomes one of their primary donors. And actually, that happened to us when we were church planning. The, uh, um, uh, I went to this big church down in Alabama. Was, they had a $2 million missions budget, this great big building. And I was like, oh, they're going to have some money to give me to come start a church. And zero dollars from them. But Wiser Lake Chapel, which is out in the county, a small church, not a lot of you know, uh, resources, generously gave to help us start this church. The Lord chooses the weak and the lowly. And one of the greatest passages on election in the whole Bible is in 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to these words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Incredibly powerful word that, powerful words that election turns the world upside down by humbling the proud, by raising up the lowly. And this is grace. This is so no human will be arrogant or proud before the supreme almighty God who rules over his creatures. Okay? Now, before we turn to our final point, I want to address maybe a few questions or objections that you might have to what I'm saying here. So, three questions that you might have about election. Okay, first question. Are you saying that God chooses some people but not others? Absolutely. That's clear in this passage. He chose David and did not choose his brothers. And even though that, that's a hard, sobering truth for us to face, it's clearly true in our experience in our lives. I mean, if you're a Christian, you know people where you have this two people that are very similar, maybe similar upbringing, similar education, similar, similar personalities, and one person they hear the gospel of God's offer of forgiveness and they say, Lord, save me. There's a heart that is, hot, uh, that is soft and humble and says, Lord, I want to know you. And then you have someone that seems very similar and no explanation why says, I don't need the Lord in my life. I don't want the Lord telling me what to do. I'm in charge of my own life. It's two very different hearts. What's the difference? The Bible tells us the difference. Romans 9 famous chapter on God's election says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And John chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of John, it says the same thing that about those who come to believe in Jesus and to love him and to follow him. It says, but to, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible says that coming to know God is just like when you were born the first time. You didn't choose to be born. 
You had no say in it. It was not your idea. It was something that God did. And you wouldn't even get to choose where you were born and what family you were born into. It was something that happened to you. When that happens in your physical life, it's true in your spiritual life as well. It is a sovereign, creative work of God. And so some people hear the gospel and immediately their hearts sing and others resist their whole lives. And it doesn't matter what you say, how loving you are, or how faithful you are to them. And so what is the difference? It's not because some people are more holy or smarter or wiser. It's the same for every difference in the world. You know, it's like, why is it? Some people are funny. Some people aren't funny. You know, some people are artistic. Some people aren't artistic. Some people are athletic and others aren't athletic. Why is it that way? You didn't choose your personal abilities, your natural abilities. They were just given to you. God is sovereign over what we are like. We didn't get to choose that. If that's true about our natural lives, how much more true about our spiritual lives? That who we are comes from God. Now, we have to qualify that, though. God chooses some and not others, but we do not know who he has chosen and who he's not chosen. That's his business. That's his knowledge. And so if someone loves Jesus, we say you only love Jesus if God has chosen you. But if you don't love Jesus, that doesn't mean that God has not chosen you. We don't know. There's still time to see. And in our commands to us is to say an open offer to the gospel to all people everywhere. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will in no way cast you out. The door is open. You are welcome to come. Okay? So that's the first answer to the, uh, does God choose some and not others? The truth is yes. And yet we give an open offer to the gospel to everyone. Okay, second question. What about free will? Someone just asked me this recently. If God is supremely sovereign over everything, what happens to the freedom of our wills? And it should be said, actually, that the language of free will, is you won't find that in the Bible. Uh, it's, uh, and I wish I had more time to talk about the history of that, the phrase free will. But I will say this, that it's a paradox. We believe that God is sovereign over his creation, and yet he does not violate the will of his creatures. As Jesus uh, says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You act according to your will, according to your heart. And how do these things go together? Well, for one, you know, when do you feel the most free in your life? I think if you're a Christian, you'd say, I feel most free when I'm loving people, I'm kind, I'm joyful, I'm, you know, generous. And you say, well, how do you do all those things? Well, it's the Holy Spirit working in me. And so... We would say, actually, we feel the most free when we are the most controlled by God. So uh, apparently, our freedom and God's sovereignty are one and the same. But even in other natural things, you know, if you feel free when you play a sport, you know, you're playing basketball and you get in the flow and you're just like shooting three-pointers or whatever, and they're all going in, and you just say, it's just effortless. How are you doing that? Well, it's God who's pumping your heart. It's God who's giving air in your breath. It's God who's making your brain fire. Every fiber of your being is being held together intimately by God. And so his sovereign control of every part of who we are is actually the thing that enables us to have freedom. And so, God's intimate, uh, and so God's sovereignty and our freedom are not at odds with each other, but mysteriously, his sovereignty creates and enables our freedom. They go together perfectly, okay? 
So we've looked at, does God choose every, some and not others? What about free will? Last question, doesn't election create an insecurity? You know, won't we constantly be worrying, what if I'm not elect? Uh, and, there's, and there's nothing I can do about it. What if I'm not elect and it's all up to God and there's nothing I can do with that? And maybe some of you have wondered that. Maybe you felt a deep anxiety and insecurity of wondering, I don't know if I'm one of God's chosen people. Well, I think that objection is best answered by our final point. And so what we've seen so far is that election shows God's supreme sovereignty. Uh, grace means that everything is done by God's initiative. And election turns the world upside down by humbling the proud and raising up the lowly. God chooses the weak of the world to humble the proud. But the last thing that we see in this passage is that election is only in Jesus. Election is only in Jesus. And so when we ask, does election create security or insecurity? Uh, the answer to insecurity is always look to Jesus. If you feel insecure, look to Jesus. And for some people, you know, they hear about election. And it's such a comfort to think, oh, I didn't say myself. It was just God who did it. And he's holding on to me. He's not going to let me go. And I just feel such such security in that. But then other people can hear the same doctrine and say like, well, I don't know if I'm elect. How, you know, how do I know if I'm chosen? And the fact is, if you're worrying about that, it's probably a good sign that God is working in your life because you probably wouldn't care if God wasn't working in your life. You wouldn't care whether you're chosen or not. But the important piece is that ultimately, Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is God's chosen one. If you are in Christ... You are chosen. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. That means no one comes to Jesus unless they're chosen. And you might have been thinking even in this sermon, you know, it doesn't seem like this sermon is really about whether God chooses some people to be Christians and other people to not be Christians. It seems like he's talking about God choosing the king of Israel, David. And you're absolutely right. That's what this passage is about. It's about God choosing the king. And there's that emphasis in verse 13 on the anointed one. You see, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And you see how God's chosen king is the anointed one who has the Holy Spirit. And so when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the word Messiah means the anointed one. That word Messiah is, is looking back to passages like this one. And just as the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended upon him. He's the son of David, God's anointed king. And then when Jesus began his ministry in Luke 4, he goes into a synagogue and he reads from a scroll in Isaiah 60, from Isaiah 61. And this is what Jesus reads about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is the chosen one. And so ultimately, we are only chosen if we are in Christ. And so if you're not sure whether you're chosen, there's one person that you can be absolutely assured is the chosen one. If you want to be chosen, stay close to him. This is what Ephesians 1, famous, I know I'm giving you a lot of Bible verses, but the Ephesians 1 is a famous passage about election. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the will of his Father. And so how do we experience the security, the joy, the love, the assurance of election is we stay close to the chosen one, to Jesus. And, you know, if I could say one more thing about assurance, if, if you've wrestled with assurance and security, how do I feel a deep sense that I know I belong to the Lord? And uh, I think on the one hand, you stay close to the chosen one, to Christ. But, you know, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that elections, I think of as a very romantic doctrine. You know, it's God has his special chosen one that he set his love on. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has a bride that he loves and is devoted to. His chosen bride is the church. And if you want to know I am a chosen one, then be in the church. Be close. When you're near this community, and many of you felt that, the more time I spend in this community, the more I feel assured in my heart that I know I belong to the Lord. I feel settled in my heart. I feel like he's got a hold of me. I feel like he's never going to let me go because that's how we are assured is by being with the chosen bride. So election is only in Jesus. He's the one that has received God's sovereign lordship. He's the one who came to turn the world upside down by humbling the proud. But he's also the one who himself became lowly and despised so that the lowly and despised could be chosen in him. If you want to know the security, the grace of election, then put your trust in Jesus, the chosen one, today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that your word speaks to us the truth. And even truths that are challenging and hard for us, we pray that um, these truths of your sovereign grace would lead us, I pray would lead our church and my brothers and sisters here to a deep assurance of your love. And so guide us, Lord, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen.